if I could time travel, that's where I'd go to. I'd go back to PEI like 500,000 years ago. From, from what I've read, and this is based on work done by Doug Sobey and uh, listening to Kate McQuarrie talk and all kinds of different, you know, really knowledgeable people, but the average tree size when, when Europeans first started measuring that stuff was four feet in diameter. And that was the average. So there was ones much bigger than that. And the average height was around 120 feet. So nowadays in PEI, I think the average uh, diameter is probably around 10 to 15 centimeters. Welcome to The Hidden Island, a podcast where we talk about local island history. My name's Fiona Steele, and I'll be your host for this journey. When I think of PEI, I think agriculture, hills, a patchwork quilt of fields as seen from an airplane. I don't think forests. But the forests in PEI have always been here. They're in the background of history. Always there, always important, but a friend you never seem to think about often. Consider this. Before colonizers arrived, forests covered about 98% of the island. Today that number is about 43%. That's a huge difference. But to understand this story, we need to go back. I don't know anything about PEI's forests, so I turn to two people working in the field. Or should I say forest? Anyways... Daniel McRae, who you just heard in the introduction, works with the McPhail Woods Ecological Forestry Project. I've never met anyone who gets as excited about trees as Dan. I also talked to Kate McQuarrie, the Director of Forests, Fish, and Wildlife for the Department of Environment, Energy, and Climate Action. That's my job, but not who I am. So I'm a botanist and natural historian with about 30 years experience working here on PEI. The story of our forest really starts at the end of the last ice age, about 12,500 years ago, because the glaciers really erased all the previous landforms and evidence and really life that was here. The most recent ice age lasted from about 26,000 years ago to 12,500 years ago. At this time, PEI would have been covered in ice three to four kilometers thick. So imagine a sheet of ice standing up that's about the size of six CN towers. Around 12,500 years ago, that ice began melting. Then by 10,000 years ago, the island was connected to the mainland by a land bridge known as Northumbria. There was no Northumberland Strait, just land as far as you can see. The average temperature was negative one degrees Celsius, and it was a tundra-like landscape. Between 10 and 8,000 years ago, trees began growing here, spruce, birch, and willow. By 7,000 years ago, a boreal forest had formed, which included more trees like oak and ash. Between 6 and 5,000 years ago, that land bridge disappeared as sea levels rose. Remember, the only people living on the island were the indigenous Mi'kmaq, so no invasive species had arrived from Europe yet. That means there were no dandelions or lupins, for example. When that land bridge disappeared, we became an island. That sounds obvious, I know, but it impacted our ecosystems. Some animals arrived in the Maritimes after the sea levels cut us off from the mainland. For those that couldn't swim across the strait or walk across the frozen ice, they just never made it. There are exceptions, of course, but being an island did impact what creatures came to Epiquit or PEI. That's probably why we only have three species of snake, 
whereas mainland New Brunswick has six. By this time, Abiquit was covered in what you'd call a Wabanaki Acadian forest. And it's one of five endangered forests in North America. It's a really neat forest because it's like, we're maritime, so we get a lot of rain. So we're on the, on the edge of being a rainforest, just due to the amount of rain we get. Other conditions are not the same at all. We have winter. But uh, yeah, so then we have this neat mixture of boreal species from the north, so from kind of the Taiga boreal forest, and then kind of broadleaf hardwoods from the south, and we're kind of a meeting point between those. For thousands of years, Abiquit's forests knew only the Mi'kmaq people. August of 1720 brought changes. Three ships and 300 colonists arrived from France. While French colonists had been cutting down trees and clearing land for agriculture, settlement, and shipbuilding, it was small-scale. In fact, there were only up to 800 Acadians living on the island before 1750. But the forests still felt their presence. The most damage done to Ile St. John's forest during this time came from two forest fires in the northeast of the island that were likely started as controlled burns for land clearance. The landscape along the north shore from, let's say, from Tracady almost all the way to East Point is different, and that's a legacy of escaped fires, essentially, fires that were set for land clearing that got out of control and burned that area. And again, in the forests and the plant communities, you can still see that difference today. Over 80 years later, the British would still be mentioning the effects of these fires in their records. Speaking of the British... Less than 40 years after the first French settlers arrived, the Acadian expulsion happened. Some Acadians were able to flee into the forest or hide with Mi'kmaq people, but a total of 10,000 Acadians had to leave the Maritimes. For the forest, the English bring really bad news. This is when settlement really ramps up. My name is Caitlin Paxson, and I'm the site manager at Green Park Shipbuilding Museum and Yo House, and we're a uh, site that talks a little bit about the history of shipbuilding here on Prince Edward Island. We're located in a place where there was a shipbuilding venture in the 1800s that was begun by James Yeo. Uh, and we also have a heritage house that was built by his son, also named James Yeo. And we try to talk a little bit about the relationship between timber on the island and forest on the island and shipbuilding because the shipbuilding industry ended up having such an enormous impact on what the landscape of the island looks like. Shipbuilding is what really changed our landscape on the island. Since we have an entire site in Western PEI about the English period of shipbuilding, I figured Caitlin could tell this part of the story. So to give a little context of how shipbuilding got started here on the island, in 1815, England was already the most powerful naval force in the world and their commercial success in the slave trade in the 18th century had funded their continued expansion. They fought wars and colonized areas across the globe, monopolized trade of the resources from those places. And by 1815, England and France were at war with each other and England really needed more ships, both for its colonial expansion and, you know, for its military um, ventures. But um, because at that point, England had long since exhausted their wood resources, they had to purchase wood from the Baltic in order to build their ships. Um, but Napoleon blocked that trade route and no longer 
sort of allowed England to purchase wood from the Baltic. Um, So they really had to figure out where they were going to get the wood to make their ships. And when Europeans got here, it was like a paradise of shipbuilding, right? Because they needed lumber and they had used up a lot of the lumber in Europe. So we we fueled PEI as well as the rest of Maritimes kind of fueled the, the British Navy. Europeans living here built ships out of island trees and then sometimes stocked those ships full of timber. They'd sell the ship full of lumber once it got back to England. This industry was a big boom on the island. In the year 1800, only three ships were built and registered. In 1866, that number was 132 vessels in just one year. So not only did the number of ships being built increase, but the size of these ships did too. The forest would have felt all of this, and for every ship built, it became smaller. And, you know... (sighs) For, for hundreds of years, tall ships were the key to global transportation and trade. And the colonization and exploitation of people and their resources went along with that. And it's impossible to talk about tall ships without acknowledging their destructive role in history. And um, it was no different here. To this day, Ebigwit is part of the unceded territory Mi'kma'ki, where the Mi'kmaq people have always lived. The forests on this island were never untouched. Communities formed and thrived here long before settlers came. But by 1830, the record stopped talking about how large, plentiful, and healthy the forests on PEI are. Previous writers would say things like, The island appeared an entire wood, as far as we could see. Prepare your mind to see groves upon groves of wilderness woods. But by 1900, these types of comments were said only in past tense. For example, one man wrote, There are no forests of any extent in the province. They've disappeared under the axes of the settler and the lumberman. And, you know, when we talk about historic forests, so much has been lost because by 1900, about 70% of the land had been cleared and farmed. Going from the island being 98% forested to 30% in 200 years is a big loss. To a modern-day listener, that sounds like a lot of environmental damage. And it was. But here's the thing. Islanders in the 1800s knew that too. And so it's really neat going through the history, like Francis Bain, who was an island naturalist in the mid-1800s maybe. But, you know, he was already remarking on going to places and then two decades later, after farming started, watching springs dry up and commenting in the 1800s that, like, if we keep cutting like this, we're going to ruin this place. And so the alerts were nice and early, and, and we just continued to do that. And then industrial agriculture came in. So, so the island, we often think of it now as this agricultural province. Um, but one of the things I like pointing out when, when I'm taking tours out or leading courses is if you just drive on the island and you look at any field that just hasn't been plowed or hasn't been mowed, and you go for like a five-minute walk, it is covered in little baby trees. So we put in plantations of white spruce and things like that that are just naturally seed in. If you just leave a field for three years, it will be filled with, a, with all white spruce as well as some other species. And so the energy, the ecological energy or direction of our island wants to be a forest. If you just leave land and you don't touch it, it becomes a forest on PEI. You know, so if you look at a field that no one's using, it wants to be a forest. I love that wording. The island wants to be a forest. Now we've talked a lot about what the forests were like before European colonization, during and after the shipbuilding boom. But what about today? And for those of you who have never stepped foot in a PEI forest, what does it look like? What does it feel like? My name is Alina McLean. I work at McPhail Woods. I'm an islander and 
You know, I do, I do a lot of different work in a lot of woods around the island, but especially this one here, I spend a lot of time in the woods that we're walking in right now. Instead of bringing Alina into a dusty old office, I went to her. So we went walking through McPhail Woods while I asked her questions. The tree canopy is probably 60 or 80 feet above us, and I'm wearing a flannel shirt to keep the bugs away despite it being the middle of August. This particular part of the McPhail Woods, and it's a fairly rare example for the province of PEI, it always reminds me of a cathedral whenever I'm down here with kids or just walking by myself. You've got a stream that's kind of winding through the base of this narrow valley. And the trees are big hemlocks, big yellow birch that kind of tower over the stream. They arc their big pillars of tree and they're very tall and it's shady. It's very green. It's very calm and it gives, it's always cool. No matter how hot it is in the summer, there's always a coolness down here because of the shade and the water. And it's one of my favorite stretches of woods in the province because I have a close relationship with it from all my years of doing camps and working on this property, but also because it, it has a real serenity to it that I think a lot of people feel as soon as they step in. There's moss growing at the base of some trees. The stream is bubbling alongside us as we walk. There's almost a hushed feeling because although there's bird calls and the highway is pretty close, the space feels different. It has a, the same kind of awe-inspiring feeling. You can really look up and up and up into the canopy. And if you look up, you've got a mixture of like really lime green pale leaves of something like a yellow birch. And these leaves are kind of light is shining through them. It's sort of dappled. And then you have the really dark lacy branches of the eastern hemlock that are much deeper green and sort of scatter kind of against the sky. So there's a lot of really beautiful contrast and that contrast of needly coniferous trees and leafy deciduous trees is one of the, the hallmarks of the Wabanaki Acadian forest. And it's a, this is a good example of it here. Okay, this guy, just one more thing. We're below a big yellow birch, and these are the kind of yellow birch. They're like, I don't know, they're like the grandmother tree of, of the forest because they're really big around, maybe two or th two and a half, three feet in diameter. And they're really tall, really graceful with big, big limbs going outward and a really big canopy and you can see like way, way up the, how the branches are sort of tossing in the wind. It, they have this shaggy, silvery bark. They just seem really ancient and, and enormous and they are protecting a lot of woods with their big canopy. And this is the kind of thing that, that plantation forests, younger forests, more disturbed forests, they don't get this kind of tree. And even when you have big trees in the city along streets, they're not as healthy as this tree is because this yellow birch is growing in a community and its roots aren't being driven over by, by vehicles. It's just able to really flourish in the woods the way it's sort of designed and adapted to grow. And so these are the kind of trees that are very precious that we have in this woods that, that are throughout the province, but they're woods that produce big, big trees like this are 
really special, in my opinion. And you can see that it's got this other eastern hemlock very close to it and their canopies are touching and I'm sure that underground their roots are touching as well and they're all in communication with each other and this is another really big beautiful hemlock here so it's this is the way that they're adapted to grow is is all in community like this and it's it's really exciting and beautiful to see them see them like that and we can't there's nothing that can fake it except the right environment and time you know we can't force trees really to grow faster and we can't force them to be big and, and beautiful like that, even in our lifetime. You know, humans are cool. I like humans and we're neat. And, and we do a lot of cool things. We send things into space and blah, blah, blah. But we can't make a thousand-year-old tree. We have no technology to do that, and I don't think we're going to get one anytime soon. And so it's just these irreplaceable things. And I always talk about the importance of unplowed soils, and you may have seen that on my Facebook page. You know, once the land is cleared and farmed, really all of that genetic diversity, the seed bank is gone from the soil, and restoring the forest on that land is not impossible, but it's challenging and expensive. That 30% of the land that wasn't cleared and farmed, some of it remains as old growth, and we're working to, to protect that and designate them under provincial legislation. Some of the others was cut over multiple times, so the quality is no longer there, but those seeds are still in the, the soils. So for my mind, the bang for the buck, if we want to talk forest restoration, is definitely in that 30% area that was never cleared and farmed. And for the areas that have been disturbed within that 30%, how long would it take to get back to the point that we're talking about? Yeah, and that's a great question. We're talking hundreds of years. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I like to talk about in those unplowed forests is that pit and mound topography. If you're walking through a forest and you notice the, the ground under your feet is really uneven and you have to be careful that you don't fall flat on your face, that's indicative that that land was never cleared and plowed. It's formed by trees that have fallen over centuries and decayed. And that process, the, the formation of that pit and mound topography takes centuries. So really, I think humans tend to th like things immediately. And we want to kind of take a look at a field or a forest that's been cut and say, how can I get that back right away? But it's not a short process if we want to restore the entire suite of diversity, which includes the, you know, the biodiversity and the tree species and the tree quality. It's a very long process. So long story short, there are still old-growth forests on PEI, but as the famous island poet Milton Acorn said, nowhere is there a spot not measured by hands. Old-growth forest doesn't need to justify its existence to humans, but there's no denying that there are a lot of benefits we receive from a healthy forest ecosystem. Lucky for us, there are a lot of fantastic organizations doing forestry and restoration work on the island. For now, I want to highlight two projects happening. First, let's talk about the Krumholtz Forest. If you don't know that word, don't worry. I didn't either until I interviewed Dan. And so it's a German word, to my knowledge, Krumholtz means, Krum means crooked or bent. Holtz means trees or woods, so it's like bent wood. And then they're sometimes called Kneeholtz, which would be bent or crooked knee. So when we talk about old growth forest, I think in the public's mind, it's those big trees, those big hardwood trees that we talked about. But it depends on what habitat you're in. So if you're in coastal PEI, that dense white spruce, or in some areas balsam fir, is old growth. And you can have a tree that may only be five or six feet tall that could be 100 to 200 years old because of that tough habitat that they live in. 
So they're important because they're old growth, they're important because they're a natural forest community, and they're important because they provide protection to our coastline. And you really just have to look back to some of the recent storms that we had. You think of Dorian a few years ago. Think of the, um, the campground at Cavendish, where most of the trees blew over. Those were all old field white spruce. Compared to the Crumholtz, the natural forest along the coastline in that same area that really didn't notice the storm at all. So these forest communities are important for protecting our coastline. They also have some rare plants and and wildlife in them as well. So they have a, a range of values and are definitely worthy of conservation. Dan and his team have been working to study the Krumholtz forest recently. Like Kate said, they noticed how these forests didn't suffer the same damage other areas did during the terrible Hurricane Dorian a few years back. In case you don't remember, that storm was intense. Houses were smashed, nearly 75% of the island lost power, and the Cavendish campground in the PEI National Park lost 80% of its trees. But here's the thing. These Krumholtz forests, these coastal wind-blown forests, had very little damage from the storm. Dan and his team wanted to know why. And then, yeah, we managed to get funding for the last year and a half or so. I think it'll be like two years of funding total to do a survey, so we chose uh, 12 sites around PEI, kind of from North Cape right to East Point. Um, Most of them are North Shore sites because that's where the biggest wind exposure is, but we did choose a couple of South Shore sites that have some exposure just to try to look at what levels. Because this project is still ongoing, you'll have to stay tuned for results on how these forests can help erosion. Okay, second project. Dan is also involved in a project hoping to replenish the black ash tree population on the island. I sat down with him and C.J. Cleal to learn more. I'm C.J. Cleal from the Abigail First Nation. I'm the forestry manager and uh, a part of a black ash project with Dan to replenish the population of black ash on Prince Edward Island, mm-hmm. Abigail. C.J. said that black ash is a really important tree culturally for the Mi'kmaq people on Abigail. Yeah, the black ash is uh, the main source of wood for our uh, baskets. And uh, we made, we, we used to, uh, before the drum was here, we used to have a, a hand instrument where you just kind of like have a stick of black ash and you have a handle and then you beat one side and it frays so you can get strips. So so you just kind of leave it. And then it, as you hit it, that was a jigamon. That was our musical instrument that we used a long time ago. <laughs> so then if we go backwards, when did the black ash first becoming less and less on the island. There's probably like a controversial topic is like the when they tried to uh, limit the the uh, intake of food for the natives we uh, we had to source different projects or ways to accumulate money to buy food so we made baskets Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, that, so it was probably us that <laughs> was the biggest. Yeah, like I read a neat report from Nova Scotia, so it may not apply to Abigail, but um, in that one they, de- they had like literally record spreadsheets of the barrels out of black ash that the, the Mi'kmaq were making in Nova Scotia and then f- the amount of cod they were catching to fill the barrels with and then the amount of those that were shipped to England. And it's really neat because that's, those are two major stocks that are mm-hmm. now very depleted. And you can just see this record over decades in the 1800s of, of that was, as you said, a way to 
you know, integrate and try to make money so that you could survive in this totally new system of economy and totally new system of territory and totally, you know, and all that stuff. So it was this adjustment, but it, it did lead, you know, to the, de the, the depletion of these trees and, and their habitats. And, and then that was coupled too with farming, right? So the Europeans mm. were coming in and the Acadians drained wetlands to farm because that was the first easiest. You didn't have to cut down as many trees. And then the English came in and harvested the giant trees for shipbuilding. And again, when you take away trees, you generally dry up wet areas because the trees are providing the shade and all the different things, the roots and stuff keeping the moisture in the ground. And so then we started destroying the habitat that they like. So not only were we harvesting the trees, but then we started taking away wetlands and paving them over or uh, farming. And uh, that also took the habitat. Flash forward to today, and black ash trees are super rare. It's because of them being cut down. But CJ also said that... Yeah, black ash having the hardest, uh, most complex r reproduction yeah. process of all the trees I've seen. <laughs> it doesn't help any. Black ash have male trees that have male flowers producing the pollen, and then they have female trees producing the, you know, the ovary that'll eventually get pollinated and turn into a seed. And they only majorly flower once every eight or nine years. And so you need not only a site with multiple trees with the gender representation that you would need to pollinate those trees. Okay, and so the work you folks are doing, when did that begin? Last year, I guess. Heavy for me. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the project got its start like maybe a year and a half or two years ago, and that initial was like applying and planning, and that was through the coordinators who were involved in the project um, from the Advocate Conservation Society. And then CJ and I started doing field work last year, um, and basically just we collected records of where black ash were spotted some were really good records and other ones were like somewhere in this region within 5,000 meters <laughs> you know just really large guesses so then we just started going to these sites and with uh it was you know always cj me and then uh, various other crew members from the Abigail conservation society so cj staff and uh yeah and then it's just been it's like it's just like fun exploring because you're never quite yeah. sure where you're going to find them so it's part of it is like planning and looking at maps and drainage patterns and river flows and all kinds of things like that and then another part is just being in the woods and getting a sense for the light and levels that they like and swampy levels that they like and you can definitely feel where they're going to be when you're walking through them yeah you just know so they have 940 seedlings at mcphail's now and they hope to plant them next spring after identifying some good locations like the krumholtz project you'll have to wait and find out what happens but I'll provide links in the show notes to these two projects I mentioned so you can learn more, as well as some groups Dan recommended you check out if you want to get involved. And that concludes this episode, along with this season. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and I hope you enjoyed these episodes. If you want to learn more about our content, find us on social media or go to peimuseum.ca. As a not-for-profit organization, we rely on donations to make a lot happen. Speaking of money, I want to thank the sponsors for this season. To Beyond the Brim Consulting, Confederation Centre of the Arts, and Upstreet Brewing, thank you for the support you've provided. We really appreciate it. Also, I really want to thank Tristan Atkins and Jacob Mikeson for voice acting in this episode, and Adam Glant for producing our soundtrack. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time on The Hidden Island.